If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. You know that podcast that tries to make economics that little bit more comprehensible, that little bit more relevant? We haven't said this for a long time. And hopefully a podcast that leaves you knowing a wee bit more about the economy when you've finished the very generous act of giving us 30 or 35 odd minutes of your time. Today, we're going to talk about... Last week, we talked about the Irish banks, and that got lots and lots of people riled up, and I can understand this. Today, we're going to be talking about the Irish banks. Yes, it did, actually. It did, actually. <laughs> I heard. I heard. Through the vine, exactly. Thanks for listening, AIB and Bank of Ireland. Uh, the check's in the post. All is good. No, but what, we, what I want to do is I want to talk about what the banking system, the budgetary approach, and the inability of the government to see clearly tells us about the type of people and the type of ideology that is advising the Irish government at this particularly sensitive time. And what I'm going to try and figure out and what I'm going to try to muse about is why the centrist parties in Ireland, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, believe that prudence at this stage in the economic cycle, or at any stage in the economic cycle, particularly now, will generate stability when it seems to me that it will generate instability. Ah, that's the first one. The second idea is why they allow the banks to behave in the following way, one of which is to cheat depositors out of their income. But on the other hand, they're not lending those very deposits that are in the bank. Bank lending in Ireland to small and medium-sized firms has collapsed. Now, that means that monetary policy doesn't work. And if monetary policy doesn't work and fiscal policy is being hemmed in by a bizarre approach to prudence, it means that the economy isn't delivering the services and the type of dynamic that it could do and should do and has to do. Why? Because in the last 20 years, the Irish population has grown by 32%. When your population grows by 32%, you need to reframe your economic thinking. You need to go from what I would call low growth thinking to high growth thinking. There's no doubt there's a risk in that transition. But if you don't transition, the risk is even bigger. So that's, John, what we're going to talk about today. Well, you know what, Mike? Not only is monetary policy not working, their ATMs aren't working either. They're chucking out. 
<laughs> it was classic. Like, talk about karma. You know, as we were saying before in last week's podcast about how the banks aren't paying out money and keeping people's savings. You know, this is a bit of payback. You know, people go, ah, free money. <laughs> And cute. So was it a hack or was it a glitch? Was it a hack? Uh, well, it was a glitch, inverted commas, whatever that means. And I'd say they don't even know what it means. But all these people, it was just funny when the when the news broke. I know you're away at the moment, but when the news broke here, there was WhatsApp groups and all the rest going, get down to the 80. Get down there, get some cash. There's no, it's the opposite of a bank run. It's a bank giveaway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But of course, but, the, Johnny, banks right. are, I, the banks are are after every single penny of that and they're going to get it back, which, you know, pisses people off. Not only are they going to get it back, I, I saw I saw on Twitter that the cops were patrolling ATM yeah, machines. Yeah, they were. As if, <laughs> as if this was a brat. But we, we come back to that in a second. But it's funny, you say, you say my way, I'm in, I'm in Croatia, John, mm. right? And I'm reading a fantastic book by a guy called Conor Curran called Soccer and Society in Dublin, A History of Association Football in Ireland's Capital, right? right. And it's a little bit granular. It's a little bit football nerdy, but... It's right up your street. It is. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And it's it's down to like the local football clubs, you right, know, like yeah. Lord Celtic and Kevin's Boys and Joey's. And- is Ducky United in it? Now, sadly, Ducky United is not in oh. it. So I'm going to take Conor Curran to task <laughs> and say, how can you possibly write a book about football in Dublin without football in the borough, without going deep, deep into football in Ducky? But that's another, another thing. But a story that I was thinking about just yesterday, John, have you ever heard about the famous football match between Yugoslavia, I'm in Croatia now, obviously. Mm. Croatia, that was obviously part of Yugoslavia. Yeah. So I'm in Yugoslavia, between Yugoslavia and Ireland, Dainamount Park in 1954. No. I'm going to tell you about this story, right? Because this, at the moment, I know on RTE, there has been a series about Noel Brown, and people have been talking about that, right? And Noel Brown and the Mother and Baby Act, Mother and Baby Homes, and all that sort of mm. thing. And the conflict between the Catholic Church and the government over maternity hospitals in the 1950s, of which the Catholic Church won. But where the Catholic Church started to lose in the 1950s happened in no more a cauldron than the epicentre of Daily Mount Park. Okay, and I'll explain <laughs> Go on, go on, go on. It's, it's the truth, right? So I'm down in Croatia. I've always been amazed at how brilliant the young fellas are here at football, right? We're down in the middle of nowhere, yeah. an island, a little bit like Inishman in the sun, right? right. Nice, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a little small football tournament here in the village every summer. It's taken very, very seriously. And all sorts of people play, even myself. Even myself get a look in, right? <laughs> so it's 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 geriatrics, young fellas, and all in between yeah, playing, right? You're, you're, you're back but in the fence, spraying the ball I'm around all, the pitch. Sweeping, John, reading the game, reading the game. <laughs> and shout, you're very, mouthy on a you're very mouthy on the pitch. I, I, you're renowned I, for that. You have, to be, you have to be able to talk for the full 90 minutes. That's the <laughs> essential part of being a footballer, right? And particularly a, particularly a grandee at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Lothar Mateus, the great German sweeper. That's who I'm modeling myself on now. Anyway, but I've always been intrigued at the quality of the football. The Yugoslavs used to be called the Brazilians of Europe. So technically good. Mm. Are they at football, right? They're amazing. And in 1954, the FAI extended an invitation to Yugoslavia, who had just hammered England and were the best team in Europe, to come to Ireland and play in Dainimant. Now, you can imagine, the reason I'm telling you this is my dad went to this game. Right, right? It's a very okay, important yeah. game in the Irish football calendar. But 
you can imagine when there was no radio, or very little radio, no TV, mm. there was just cinema in Dublin. One of the biggest events would be the arrival of a fantastic football team from Eastern Europe, yeah. right? This was, people wanted to go to see. But Archbishop McQuaid, the Jeez. Archbishop of Dublin, yeah. who was in his pomp at that stage, urged the government to ban the game. Why? He'd already done that successfully two years previously in 1952 where the government banned the game. Now, the why is the interesting question. Yeah. It is because in the Second World War, the Nazis occupied Yugoslavia, mm, okay? Yeah. And then they started to lose against the partisans. And as they started to lose against the partisans, they also had this problem with they'd given Dalmatia, this part of Croatia where I am in, to the Italians as kind of a present okay. to Mussolini. Yeah. I, have that, I have that bit, okay, because this is very close to Italy. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the Italians then changed sides, right? The Italians gave up. Yeah. And they said, we're not in this anymore. So the, the Nazis then had to figure out what they were going to do. And what they did was there's always been really severe ethnic tensions here between Serbs and Croats. And the Croats in 1942, 1943, declared an independent Croatian republic. And it was run by a fellow called Ante Pavlovich, right? Mm -hmm. And it was an Ustase state, which was basically a Croatian Nazi state. But it said that Croatia was going to be not only Croat, but also very Catholic. So to be a Croatian, you need to be Catholic. A bit like Ireland in the old days, okay. right? Yeah. And in order to achieve this ethnic purity, there was a mass cleansing, murder of civilians, particularly Serbs. Okay. Because within the borders of that Croatian state were one and a half to two million Serbs. So there was a free-for-all. And of course, the Serbs were siding with both the partisans, who were Tito's communist partisans, and the Serbian Chetniks, who were royalist Serbs. So it was, it was a massive, massive cauldron of war. Mm. When the partisans won under Tito, who was also Croatian, but a Croatian atheist, he said, okay, we are now going to find all the members, the senior members of that regime, that Croatian regime, who orchestrated these mass executions. They had concentration camps, all sorts of yeah. stuff. They killed about 60,000 Jews as well. They killed gypsies. They killed Serbs. Mm. And what happened was the Catholic Church in Croatia had given their blessing to this regime. And there was a guy called Cardinal Stepanitz. And Stepanitz means Stevens, right? Yeah. Cardinal Stevens, Stepanitz. So Tito arrests him after the Second World War, right? Because what had happened was the Vatican gave Havlovich, the original dictator, yeah. the exit visas to get to Argentina, right? right? So the Vatican were involved in getting these Nazis, proto-Nazis out of Europe. Christ, yeah, yeah. So Tito comes in and says, okay, we're going to get all you guys who are associated with that room. Now, Tito was no angel. The partisans were doing killings on their own yes, side too. Yeah. So it was, it was awful, yeah. right? So he takes the cardinal and he puts him under house arrest. This inflames the Vatican. And of course, the Vatican's man in Dublin, following what was called the Ultramontane Creed, was Archbishop McQuaid. So Archbishop McQuaid decided that everybody associated with Yugoslavia was an anti-Catholic heretic. And plain Yugoslavia was given legitimacy to these anti-Catholic communist heretics. And we should not do this. <laughs> and amazingly, right. amazingly, given his extraordinary power in Ireland at yeah, the time, yeah. the FAI didn't back down. They said, no, we're going to go ahead with the game. And 22,000 Irish people turned up to see Yugoslavia play in Dalyman Park in 1954. And this was the very, very first chink in the Catholic Church's domination right. of Ireland. right. And this is a current that goes through 
relationship between the Catholic Church and the soccer fraternity in Ireland yeah. over years, particularly the urban soccer fraternity in Ireland. And of course, of course, it is something that when you mention it to the Croats, they have no idea. No, no. That basically, they, yeah. the Catholic Church's power in Ireland began to atrophy with the arrival of the Yugoslav football team in 1954, of which the Yugoslavs won 4 1 because they were the best football team in Europe. Yeah. There you go. These are the little gems you get. Actually, well, who right. scored for Ireland? Well, I tell you who was playing for Ireland was Liam Tui, who people will remember as being an RTE commentator out in the wing. Ah. Liam Tui, I think it was his first game. He also played for Rovers, I think played for Everton as well. Right. So I was mentioning this last night in the pub, in the cafe <laughs> to my Croat mates, and they're just looking at me blankly going, <laughs> where do you get this sort of <laughs> Catholics versus communists played out in the playing fields of Fibsborough. You don't get many stories better than that's that. That's fantastic. Through, John. That is fantastic. At that time, Irish banks were also, interestingly, very, very, apart from Bank of Ireland, yeah. which was regarded as a Protestant bank, do you know that there were no Catholics governors of the Bank of Ireland until about 20 years ago? That was your man, the Latouche family. And they were the guys who lived in Marley Park, the big house in Marley Park. That was their pad. That was their place. And now, as I, we're going to talk about banking now, but let's even segue a little bit more, right? Ooh, okay. The Latouche family were French Huguenots, and French Huguenots were the bankers of the French royal family until the French kicked them out. And the French Huguenots were related to their Calvinist brothers, the bankers of Geneva, right. who financed most of Europe. The first governor of the Bank of England was a Huguenot. Right. And even still, the poshest bank in England that you might know called Casanova right. are a Huguenot family. So the Huguenots were the bankers of Europe. Mm. Latouche, obviously, because they were French, was a Huguenot. And he set up Bank of Ireland. And it wasn't until about 20 years ago that the first governor of the Bank of Ireland was a non Protestant. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I love this. Anyway. I love this. All I have to do is just prod Mac now and then in just certain places and all this stuff comes <laughs> pouring out. It's fantastic. I know. It's exactly. It's just all, it's all in this head of mine. Anyway, we've talked about banks. We've talked about Croatia. We've talked about Dating Man Park. Let's hit it on the banks. Should we take a break? Yes, let's do that. We'll be back with bad economics in high places. 
You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, Mark, let's get into this, this Irish banking debacle. I mean, before we were talking about how banks were keeping depositors' interest rates and declaring as their profit, what else is going on in the banking world? What's your gripe now? The gripe, it's not a gripe, it's an observation, John, right? Right. Is banks are critical for a variety of reasons, but the major reasons in macroeconomics is because the banks are the agents of monetary policy. Mm. So the idea is the banks are the heart, the economy that pumps the blood, which is credit around the body. Yeah. And the supposition is when the deposits go into the banks, this allows the banks or gives them leverage. Now, there's also the technicalities. Don't have to worry about these, right? Yeah. But this gives them the latitude to lend. So a very healthy economy will be an economy where, for example, lending should be close to around 100% of GDP. Yeah. So basically what you have is you've got your income, you lend it out. Now, countries that save will have a little bit less. Countries that are younger and spending have a little bit more, but that's where it should be. So in and around, like between 80 to 100% of GDP. So what comes in should go out. Yeah, more or less, okay. More, okay. more or less, more or less. So that's exactly, the, that's exactly the case. So for every saver, there is a spender. For everybody who wants to save, there's somebody who wants to spend. It's driven by, you might remember we mentioned a friend called Franco Medigliani in our Italian discussion a couple of weeks ago. Indeed. It's a life cycle hypothesis of economics, which is basically very simple. You spend much more between the ages of about 20 and 50 than you do when you're young and than you do when you're old. And over the lifestyle, the old's savings should be recycled by the middle-aged to pay for, in effect, families, right? Yes. Yeah. Which is where yeah. you, you, know, you start spending most, right? So that's great. In Ireland, at the very, very height of the Celtic Tiger boom, we were over-lending to the tune of 167% of GDP was being lent out every year. Okay. Which is far too high. Yeah. Now it's 27% of GDP, which is far too low. Right. So what is actually happening is the banks are not lending to small and medium-sized enterprises in any material way. Why is that? Now, this is the very interesting thing. The latest service is push and pull, right? So I believe it is because the banks do not have to lend in order to make profits because they are being rapacious on the deposit side. So Irish banks are making money by simply, by simply not passing on the income that should be accruing to savers and keeping it for themselves. Yeah. That allows them to post very good profit numbers without having to lend. And the problem with lending, lending's dangerous. Lending's yeah. risky. Lending means you have to know your company. You need to know your client. You need to know what you're doing, right? So what that means, therefore, is the Irish economy is an economy that is operating without credit. Now you think, well, how come the economy is growing so quickly if we don't have credit? Exactly. And what we see is, therefore, that large parts of the economy are dominated by companies that don't need credit. So large multinationals, large corporations that can issue bonds, can issue equity, that don't necessarily have to, they can, what's called non-bank source of financing. Okay. And the government. So you have the risk is you're going to end up with an economy which is dominated by huge multinationals and a huge public sector, because the government doesn't borrow from the banks, the government borrows from the bond market. Mm. And squeezed in the middle, there's 150 billion of deposits in Ireland, and only a fraction of that is getting out 
to small and medium-sized enterprises. Right. Now, the other observation is the following, which is that the small and medium-sized enterprises, those who are expanding, are operating what they call bootstrapping. They're operating from their own cash flow. Yeah. Now, that's all very well, but it means that they won't be able to scale. Remember we talked about scaling businesses? Yeah. The whole idea of scale is that you dream big, you have big ambitions, you front finance, and you build. Yeah. Now, that can only happen in a world of ample credit. There should be ample credit in Ireland because there's ample deposits. We are running a current account surplus, which means the country is full of money. Yeah, it's washing around the place. Yeah. It's full of money, right? But the small and medium-sized enterprises can't get their hands in it because the banks won't lend to them. Yeah. So therefore, they are falling back on their own cash flow. But the dilemma then is that only existing companies can fall back on cash flow because they have the cash flow. So what happens to startup companies? What happens if you want to set up a restaurant or a bar? Or It doesn't have to be high tech. It could be anything, right? You don't have the cash flow. The banks won't give you any cash or any credit. Mm. So it means that the economy becomes sclerotic. The very dynamic part that we've always said, I've always said that the small and medium-sized enterprise are the muscle of the economy. Yes, of course, yeah. That's where things happen. That's where people become entrepreneurs. That's where they take risks. That's where they build their network. Mm. That's where, you know, have you noticed the amount of restaurants going bust in Ireland? Yes. They go bust because they don't have operating, any sort of operating leverage so that they're all trying to finance out of their own cash flow. You know, Small builders in Ireland, you know, a fellow be building 10 houses or 12 houses, you know, per year at the edge of a country town, right? Mm. Those guys are all gone. They're all gone. Yeah. But why are they all gone? Because they can't get credit. They can't get cash flow. You cannot build out of your own cash flow. It's too expensive. So the way in which you build... But this feels like a, a missed trick by the banks, surely. It's complete. No, it's a missed trick by the state. Forget the banks. The banks can do what they want in one way. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. The state should be encouraging them to lend. So what you have, therefore, is only massive big builders and big developers and, you know, big pension profits. fund finance developers are basically dominating the land market, the housing market. Yeah. The small guys aren't getting any credit. They can't. And of course, what has happened is the banks got so badly burnt in 2008, 2009, that they are shit scared to lend. But the overall big picture, the whole point of the podcast is to take altitude, John. Take altitude away from, and and look at the big picture. The big picture is small and medium-sized enterprises are not getting financed. We don't really see the effect of that because multinationals are so dominant in the headline aggregates, right? Mm. Taxation, employment, et cetera. And the public sector is so big and getting bigger. And we've seen all this. But what is actually happening is that little bit in the middle which is the vibrant, muscular part of the economy, are starved of credit. So certain companies are continuing to play the game because they have cash flow. But all the while, there are loads and loads of small companies, young entrepreneurs, that will actually not go out on their own because of a lack of credit. Now, what that does is it creates an economy of employees. Right, okay. Right? And an economy of employees sounds stable. But it isn't. It's incredibly fragile, simply because it's static. This is going back to Nassim Taleb's point of anti-fragile. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It needs so, a dynamism in, in in the economy. It needs dynamism. It needs entrepreneurialism. Yeah. It needs invention. It needs an innovation. It needs people taking risks. All that thing. You can't have a country of employees. A country of employees was former Yugoslavia, as we spoke about earlier yes. on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a socialist country, right? So you have to have this energetic side of the economy. Yeah. And the banks are strangling that, despite the fact that they have. The money, but the reason they can strangle that is they're actually robbing depositors. So that's where they're making their profits. Right. Okay. Right. And then you pull back a little bit more, John, and you look at the central bank. They should be thinking about this, agonizing about this, on TV explaining this to people, on radio explaining this to people, but they're not. Either because they can't see, which would be terrifying, or they won't see, which would be equally complicating. Yes. The Department of Finance, what are they doing? Well, they're coming out and telling people, look, this is the way the economy works. We have a dilemma, right? And then you have this bizarre crowd called the Fiscal Advisory Council, John, right? Who are they? They are a bunch of what I would call blackboard economists, right? Right. Uh, academics, fellows who teach, and fellows and girls who teach for a living. Yeah. So school teachers, but in universities, right? Yeah. Blackboard yeah. economists, not really living in the real world. And their advice to the government is prudence, 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 right? Yeah. So imagine what's happened in Ireland. The population of Ireland has increased by 32% in 20 years. That is phenomenal. That's kind of unprecedented in Western That's enormous, Europe. yeah. Certainly since the 1950s, yeah. right? Now, if the population increases by 32%, it means demand increases dramatically because people need places to live. They yeah. need schools to go to. They need roads to drive on. They need trains to get. They need darts to get. They need electricity. They need water. They need everything, yes. right? So the yeah. population of 32% increase totally changes in very, very basic economics. The demand curve shifts outward. Yeah. So that means the supply curve has to shift as well, unless you want to get inflation and bottlenecks, etc. all of which we have. We have, yeah, absolutely. So why do we have all those? Is because the state is not spending the money it has. Now, imagine, for example, the state is estimating that over the next three years, we will run budget surpluses of close to 50 billion combined, yeah. 50 billion euro. Rather than spend that, they're going to save that. Well, they'll stick it into a, into a children's hospital, I'm sure, all of it. Well the, well, the thing about the children's hospital, at least they're building the children's hospital. You know, sometimes you know, the children's hospital will be with us for a while. Now, you can, you, we can agonize over, the, over, yeah, the, yeah, over yeah. the amount of money spent, but at least it's going to be built. And there will be better health care for Irish children for the next 50 years once it's up. Yeah. That's the objective, right? The idea is they're not building at any way consistent with this massive increase yeah. in population, which is why we're having... A, so why are they not doing this? The reason, I believe, is that they've been advised not to do it by this fiscal... The, the blackboard economists, mm. right? And why is that? It's because they're very good at textbooks, right? And they, they believe that, you know, we've got to push things away for a rainy day. Okay, which sounds sensible, but it's actually very, very dangerous, but, right? Do you know, when you mention the word prudence, it reminds me of Gordon Brown. You know, that was his mantra always was prudence, prudence, prudence. But he was it the one was... who presided over a failing UK economy. You know, that's when the UK really took a dip. And I suppose the other thing we hear about a lot as well is putting money aside for a, a potential pension time bomb. But as you say, we have a growing young population, so... That should look after that to a certain degree. But the other thing about it is that, is that these blackboard economists, as you say, you know, surely they can look out their window and see what's going on. You know, we need houses, 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 houses. That's all we need. So why can't they see that? Like, is it like a will 
or a lack of vision? It's, it's not that they have no vision. They fail to understand the power of money. They fail to understand the political reality of the economic cycle. And they are wedded to this idea that the budget deficit should be eliminated right, and we need to operate surpluses. Yeah. And why is that? It's because they are traumatized by the economics of the 1980s and the 1990s. They have low growth economics. And the 2000s, I suppose, as well, after 2008. Well, well, no, because well, we see what happened in 2008 is the banks destroyed the economy, not the government. Yeah. The banks destroyed the economy. It wasn't actually fiscal spending destroyed the economy. It was actually far too much bank lending, obsessive banking to one sector to property. Yeah, but, you know, we've spoken about in the last while about this promise of a, of a recession, which hasn't happened, of course. But are they kind of wary about kind of being saddled with yeah, so much look, debt that when a recession hits that we're, we're banjaxed again, we're back to square one? You see, the, the problem with this is, you know, on a balance sheet, there's debt. On the other side of the balance sheet, there are assets, mm. right? Nobody seems to talk about the assets, right? The assets of the country are the educated people, the housing stock, the rail right, stock, yeah, yeah. everything. So it's not as if, you know, the problem is we have been hijacked by a debt fetish, right? Which says that debt, you look at debt, oh my God, debt. But you don't look at what is the debt bought? What are yeah, the assets okay, on the other side? Okay. But the point is, the point is right now, the population is growing at a ridiculous rate. And it's throwing off this huge amount of income. And this huge amount of income is the new reality. And what they're taking is they're taking this huge amount of income, and by income, I mean taxation, right? Yeah. And they're capturing it and they're saying, we can't spend that now. And what they're saying to the government, to the centre parties is, this prudence will make it more stable, the economy more stable in the future. Yeah. But in the future, in the long run, as Keynes said, we're all dead. Yeah. There is the urgency is now. Why do you think Sinn Féin on the left and some of these more right-wing groups on the right are becoming much and much more of a destination for Irish voters? Because the state is been advised to save when it should be spending. And the reason it should be spending is because the population is increasing. Yeah. If the population was decreasing, as is the case in the United Kingdom, for example, the United Kingdom's population has begun to fall. Mm. Then, of course, you can say, okay, well, then we don't spend. If it's decreasing as it is in Germany, as it is in other countries, Italy, that we talk about, then, grand, don't spend. But when the population is increasing, you've got to spend. And if you don't spend, the population will get pissed off. Yeah. Right? And they will look for somebody to blame. And they will look for immigrants. They will look for foreigners. They'll say, if it wasn't for the foreigners, I would have a house. No. If it wasn't for the government not building social housing, I would have a house. Yes. So it's much more easy to target alien people, different people, other people. And what you get into this mix, and this is what I'm saying, is the centrist parties are risking everything by prudence when they should be embracing the logic of expenditure. And if you look at any great society, any great civilization, they are defined by their public works. You know, you go to Florence, it's defined by its public works. You know, we go to France, right? The French are defined. You go to Paris, you say, wow, these guys build great things. They build metros. It's what Joe Haslam was saying about Spain. Yeah, they're defined yeah. by their public works, right? And we need in Ireland to understand that not only can you define a society by feats of great engineering and people can be proud of it, but it actually is what punctures radicalism. 
A puncture's radicalism is giving people in a growing economy a sense that they are growing with it, rather than giving people in a growing economy the sense that they are being asphyxiated by a lack of spending. And then selling this bullshit to people, say, well, don't worry, we're saving for a rainy day. Do you know Martin Luther King, John? We've been around the houses in this yes, particular podcast today. Martin Luther King had a great expression about civil rights, and he called it the extreme urgency of now. So what was it? There was, a, there was a split in the civil rights movement, and many people in the civil rights were saying to Martin Luther King, go slow, little gains, little gains, incremental, incremental, and we'll be okay. Martin Luther King said, no, we need liberation today. The extreme urgency of now has to be injected into thinking in Ireland. And what we have is also economists and advisors who don't understand what I would call the time value of money, right? Yeah. The time value of money is one of the central intellectual leaps you have to make in macroeconomics to understand how the thing works. Which is what? It is based on the idea that money today is worth more than money tomorrow. Very fucking simple, right? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. <laughs> right. Unless you have deflation. So unless you expect prices to be lower in 10 years' time than they are now, yeah. in which case you postpone your spending to take advantage of the bargain in 10 years' time, yeah. it, only if you expect mass deflation is public saving a good idea. When you are expecting increase in inflation, which we are because yeah. the population is growing, yeah. because the demand curve has shift, you've got to spend now because every single cent you save you lose money on it because it's inflated away, which is why a public contract signed today and locked in today is going to save you money than the same public contract locked in in five years' time. Yeah. So economists who advertise saving on a national level now don't understand this basic idea of the time value of money. Now, these are the stuff that I would teach in Trinity, like 101 economics, yeah. right? Like an undergraduate yeah. would fail an exam Your blackboard if they didn't understand these... <laughs> exactly, 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 exactly. And you've got to take it out of the conference room. You've got to take economics out of the lecture hall and explain yeah, to people, yeah, yeah. this is what's happening. And so all the while, now this is what I'm saying. Our politicians, because prudence sounds good, it sounds good to save. I'm very yeah. right. In fact, the Beatles had the greatest piss take of, of savers in their song, Dear Prudence. Yes. Right? <laughs> which was the Beatles' piss take of people who were mean, okay? Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. sure who they were directing at that, but it's one of the great Beatles songs. Well, Susie and the Banshee had the, had the definitive version, though, has to be said. They did. Susie and the Banshee's Dear Prudence, one of their finest, wedged between Hong Kong, what was it, Hong Kong Garden? Was their second yes. Single? And... Uh, was it Happy House? I'm going to have to dive back into my 80s record collection. John of an encyclopedic knowledge of... Early, early 80s new wave tracks <laughs> emanating from Croydon, where Susie and the Bunchies came yeah. from. Anyway, let us wrap this up, John. Let us wrap this up. What I'm saying is monetary policy doesn't work because the banks are not lending. Mm. That means credit isn't trickling down to the domestic, small, and medium-sized enterprises. Okay, that's the first thing, which means that entrepreneurialism is being choked of finance, right? Yeah. It also means that small builders don't exist anymore. So the very nimbleness of the building sector that years ago allowed us to build lots of houses is gone because they can't get credit. The banks are making this all legitimate by saying to the government, but look, we're making profits. Yeah, yeah. But they're only making profits by robbing people, right? On the other side, you have 
the economy throwing off tens of billions of euros. Why? Because the population is growing and we are growing with it. And rather than spend that now on public infrastructure, they are being advised to save it. But we know that saving now is actually losing money because of the time value of money and the rate of inflation, but also politically. This is the juice that the radical parties need to fuel their grievances on the streets against migrants and against this and against that and against the other. And it all makes sense to the average punter because they're living in a country that's rich, but they feel poor. Yes. They're living in a country that's rich, but they're stuck in traffic. They're living in a country that's rich, but they can't find a gaff to live. They're living in a country that's rich, but they're living with their mom and dad. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all because of a lack of vision at the core of economic policymaking. And that's what leads to radical change. And sometimes radical change is to come back to the expression you were mentioning last on China. You don't really want to live in these interesting times. You want to live in times that are peaceful and placid. And the whole point of being rich is you buy yourself placidity. You buy yourself peace. You buy yourself what they call social cohesion. And we are rich and we're throwing it all away. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.